Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. Well, hopefully, and I, what I'm about to say might make disturb you, might shock you. <laughs> Not really shocking, but it may be a little bit uh, surprising or maybe an inconvenience. But believe it or not, on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, currently and until June 29th, we are abstaining from meat and dairy products. Oh, I can hear a little sigh. Yes, I know. This is the hazy, lazy, wonderful days of summer. Lots of cookout and barbecues. I do the same thing. But on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we abstain from meat and dairy products as part of the penitential season leading up to the feast of the great saints Peter and Paul. It's actually a 40-day penitential season. If you've listened to this program for any amount of time, you'll recall that I have said many times that there are basically, in a sense, four Lenten seasons. Not exactly, but something like that. Four Lents. In other words, four major penitential seasons in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. And those penitential seasons always involve fasting, prayer, and increased works of charity. Now, none of them are as strict or as great as the great fast. That's the Lenten fast. That's the high penitential season. But we do have a penitential season that prepares us for the great feast of Saints Peter and Paul, the birth of our Lord, his resurrection, and the Dormition of the Mother of God, or in other words, her entrance into heaven, or as they say in the Latin rite, her assumption. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I know that's kind of hard because of the activities that go on during the summertime. It's even hard for me sometimes to remember. <laughs> you know, you get invited to barbecues, you like to cook out, eat out, and so on. There's lots of picnics, a lot of vacation things. Now, largely, the adherence to this fast is and I hesitate to say this word, but I will because it's in our typicon, in other words, the, the rule of practice for the Byzantine Church. It says, at least for the Eparchy of Parma, my diocese, my Eparchy, it says that this practice is voluntary, however, highly recommended. 
Just because something's voluntary doesn't mean, well, okay, we can be casual about it. Highly recommend it. In fact, I reserve, I'm very reserved about using that word voluntary or even obligatory. And here's the reason why. I'm coming from, of course, an Eastern Christian perspective. When it comes to the love of God and our life that is in response to that love of God, you know, we have this great, great sense of the awesomeness of God, all that he has done for us, and how grateful we need to be. This is why our prayers are so long and rich, because we we grope to find yet another word to describe God's greatness and to express our thanks to him and also to beg, of course, mercy from him, because in relation to him, we are just such nothings. Everything is dependent upon his mercy. So we use lots and lots of words. We, in a sense, go overboard. So we start from that standpoint, which means that you don't do things just because it's an obligation, or you don't use the rules to have a spirituality of minimalism, or what I call that's good enough spirituality. It's kind of a mediocrity. That would not be an honest, accurate response to the consciousness and the articulation of, as we do in our prayers, of so great a God. So I reserve saying those words obligation or voluntary. Yes, it is true. We can say that we have an obligation to go to church, especially on Sunday and the weekend. However, there are holy days, too, in which they are what you might call obligatory. But I hold back in using that word, although it's appropriate the church uses it, because I like to encourage my parishioners, and also all of you who are listening, I like to encourage you to do things out of this response of this incredible God, out of an overflowing response of gratitude and wonderment, and wanting to give back to a God who has given us so much that is so great. And that includes the great saints, too, the feast days. For example, we're fasting, as I mentioned, in preparation for the feast of Saints Peter and Paul. Great, great saints, let's face it, pillars of the church. In fact, we have an icon in the church. The icon of Saints Peter and Paul shows them literally standing together, holding up a church together. Because they are, they're like the pillars of the church, the two great early saints upon which the church really stands upon. Their their great, great witness and their theology, their spirituality, their closeness to Christ. So we have feast days like that. We have another one coming up, the birth of St. John the Baptist. That's on June 24th. And by the way, a very interesting anecdote here. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know what I mean if I say St. John's bugs? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. St. John's Bugs. I remember when I was a little child, my great-grandmother who came from Europe where they were very pious and very, very much practitioners of their faith. It was their whole life. She would connect everything with God and faith in many ways. And she said to us one day, we were outside in the summertime and we're catching a particular kind of bug. They're known as the lightning bugs or fireflies. And she would say to us, be careful, those are St. John's bugs. I didn't know what she meant by that. I thought, wow, holy bugs? I better be careful. We used to love to catch them in a jar and watch them light up. (laughs) And so as I grew up, I remember what my grandmother said, but I also learned the reason why. Because these bugs actually do, in fact, come out in their fullness around the feast of St. John the Baptist Nativity which is on June 24th. That's right. In fact, at our award-winning indigenous 
prairie that we have on my property. And you can see that by going to byzantinecatholic.com. Byzantinecatholic.com. You see great pictures and information about our prairie. I marvel in the summer nights around June 24th. I marvel at the beauty as I look out over the prairie, at the beauty of the fireflies, the lightning bugs, the St. John's bugs that are flickering all through what we might call the meadows or the, the prairie. It's really quite spectacular. It's just spark like the prairie is just sparkling at night. And it's all these bugs that do in fact come out at the same time as we celebrate the Nativity of St. John the Baptist in our liturgical calendar of the Byzantine Church. So just an interesting anecdote, but it, it's a way of extending what happens in the scripture and the liturgy into our lives. It makes us mindful of that just as my great-grandmother did for me. Every time I look, look at those bugs, and I looked at them all my life, I always think to myself, hmm, my great-grandmother, these are St. John's bugs. And now I know why she said that. We couldn't understand at the time, but now I know. And this is what we mean by also living the liturgy, the domestic church, making nature and life, every aspect of your life, connected with the consciousness of the feast days of the church, the lives of the saints, the events of the life of Christ, the mother of God. This is what's called living the liturgy. Living the liturgy. We have to develop a liturgical consciousness. So what we'd like to do, what I urge you to do, is to take these preparation days very seriously. Don't think of them as voluntary. Even though that word is used, don't think of it that way. Think of it more as a response to being touched by the greatness and the beauty of God. Especially during the summertime, let's face it, there's so many beautiful days out, so much fun that there is to have. And that should make us mindful. That should touch us, give us a God consciousness. And the only way to respond to that is through thanksgiving and praise. So embrace these preparatory times for these great feasts and embrace the feasts themselves. Live the liturgical cycle. Live the prayer of the church during these great feast days. Now, also, the interesting aspect of this nativity of St. John the Baptist, which comes up just before the Feast of St. Peter and Paul, is that it's one of the few times, and if you think about it, this is something that may not come to you right away, but think about it. It's the only time, other than Christ and the Virgin Mary, that we celebrate in the liturgical calendar the birth of a saint. The birth of a saint. Think about it. It's usually when they're martyred or their death or some event in their life or the translation of their relics. That's real popular in the Byzantine churches. <laughs> the translation of the relics of St. Nicholas or St. John the Baptist, the third finding of the head of St. John the Baptist. So there's those events too. But never do we celebrate the birth of a saint. And the reason is, is because the birth is great, but because they're born, that's not why they're great. They, they attain greatness through their humility, through their holiness, which many times results in their martyrdom. So that way we know that they're holy, we know that they're in heaven, we know that they're saints by what happens to them after their birth. So the birth is wonderful, but it's not really what marks them as very, very special, except in the case of John the Baptist, the Virgin Mary, and Jesus Christ. So another interesting aspect of the feast days that are coming up of both St. Peter and Paul and also the Nativity of St. John the Baptist in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. Now when we come back we're going to talk more about living the liturgy and how it's so relevant to all kinds of discernments and aspects of our life. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. 
We're excited to welcome two new stations, now part of the EWTN radio family. Hello to everyone listening on FM 88.1, serving Gillette, Wyoming, and AM 970, serving Austin and Rochester, Minnesota. A special thanks to Steve and his great team at Real Presence Radio who have worked very hard to bring these great stations into their growing apostolate. Again, welcome to our new listeners now hearing us on FM 88.1 in Gillette, Wyoming, and AM 970 in Austin and Rochester, Minnesota, the newest members of the EW10 radio family. Save, save, save the dates for Prairie Fest, Friday through Sunday, August 10th through the 12th, at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. More info at ByzantineCatholic.com. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loya and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R life at earthlink.net. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyal, your host. We're looking at the lazy, hazy, wonderful days of summer, but also trying to remain mindful during this time where there is a lot of distractions, and they're wonderful distractions too, but we still have to live the liturgy. And the liturgical cycle, the church helps us. We're past all the great, great high holy days, but we're now in a fasting period leading up to another great holy day, Saints Peter and Paul. And there's the Nativity of St. John the Baptist along the way. That's on June 24th. So we want to stay mindful, not forget about church and living our liturgy, living our spirituality, even during the wonderful days of summer. Another aspect of the liturgy, and it has to do with summer as well, is the liturgy can give us a good context. In fact, it's the ultimate context for really all answers to life, moral issues. You know, as a pastor, and if anybody's listening who is a pastor, you probably can relate to what I'm going to say. And if you're not a pastor, you could probably relate, especially if you're a parent, especially if you're a parent of a teenage girl or girls, plural, or even a young adult girl. You'll relate to what I'm going to say. During these lazy, hazy, hot days of summer, usually pastors have to give the talk at some point. The talk about, well, a reminder about proper dress at summertime in church. And this happens all over the country, especially in the warmest areas. You even see signs, you see instructions, you see admonishments, you hear it in homilies, etc., etc. I usually have to do that too. Not always, but usually. And that I have found to be one of the most impenetrable issues of our day when it comes to moral issues. Now, there's many, many big, hot moral issues today. But one of the ones that I find to be most impenetrable is to talk about women's dress or how girls should dress. They seem to be very, very resentful about that. Very resentful. It's very, very challenging. And I know many mothers will tell me, oh, Father, 
I'm glad you're dressed at a church because it's like World War III, the way to church, because I don't want my daughter wearing what she wears, but she insists on it, and it's just a big fight. I don't want to have a big fight on the way to church. So mom gives in, or she just gives up, or there's just a kind of a truce. Well, again, we can turn to the liturgy for help. When we address things like proper attire for liturgy, especially during these hot days, and especially in regard to the ladies, we're not just doing a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's not about being prudish. It's not about being hung up or having hang-ups. It's not about being authoritarian. It's not about being out of touch and kind of you know crusty and uppity and whatever you want to call it. There's all kinds of adjectives and descriptions of resentment whenever this issue is approached. Actually, it's complementary. It brings us back to base, to once again seeing life, especially seeing the human person, in this case girls, sacramentally. And that's very, very much the spirituality of Eastern churches. If you think for a moment of what goes on in the liturgy, think of how the priest addressed, think of all the veils, the curtains, the elaborate appointments and things that are in the church. You notice, and if you think even like, for example, of a wedding or very formal occasion, notice that the higher we regard things, the more we cover and adorn them. So if you look at the times and the places in the liturgy where there are things that are adorned and veiled and covered, you'll see that it happens quite a bit in the liturgy. Just look at the vestments of the priest. In the Byzantine church especially, the vestments of the priest are very large. They're very long. We almost have to fight our way out of it sometimes. <laughs> it's done purposely. We have a very long outer vestment that even covers our hands. It comes down in the front. It's cut very low in the front. Because our hands are covered, most of us are covered, because as priests, although we are performing our tasks and our roles as priests, the message being sent, and there's always a message, there's always a theology, there's always something being indicated through something physical, something of a higher nature. And so the long, large vestments indicate that although we are doing our part as priests, for example, the bread and wine is not turned into the body and blood of Christ by the priest. It's done through the priest, but it's done by God, by the Holy Spirit. And in the liturgy, we say that it is Jesus Christ who offers and is offered. And so the priest has a role, but in one sense, although it seems active in relation to what's really going on, in relation to the divine, to the reality, the mystical reality, the priest's role is actually rather passive. The Holy Spirit is working through the priest. So we cover ourselves to de-emphasize ourselves. And there is oftentimes, in addition to the icon screen that separates the holy of holies from the nave, there is, in addition to that, on many Eastern churches, a veil or a curtain that further conceals the Holy of Holies. Then recall that in the procession, the great entrance where the priest and deacon carries the chalice and the discos with the bread, the bread and wine, the things that will become the very body and blood of Christ. How does he do that? Think about that. When you see that procession, the chalice and the discos are veiled. They are covered. And they remain covered until there is the actual moment leading up to the consecration and the calling down of the Holy Spirit upon the gifts. And in fact, in the pre-sanctified liturgy, 
in the Byzantine church. This is, this is the liturgy we do during Lent. The sacred gifts are covered even to the point where the priest has to reach underneath them at one point to elevate the host, and it is kept covered. His hand in the chalice is in the discos is still kept covered at that point. He has to almost feel his way underneath it. Then it is uncovered. And that's an important other point of this whole issue. In the church and liturgy, we see that sacred things are covered, not because they're shameful or bad, but the opposite, because they're so wonderful, they're so special and sacred. And they're unveiled ceremoniously only at certain moments for certain eyes, for certain occasions. And those eyes have to have certain attitudes when they see what is unveiled. Well, you experience that in the liturgy, if you experience a Byzantine liturgy. It's also true in the Latin rite as well in many ways. But it's especially apparent in the Eastern churches because we love covering, we love veils. Well, if the ladies could think of dress in the context of the liturgy, Think of their bodies and their person as a girl, as a woman, and all the dignity that God has woven into womanhood and femininity, the genius of womanhood, as St. John Paul II said. Think of all of that. That is very special. Your bodies are special, and so they are covered. Now, not head to toe. We're not talking about burkas. It's a whole different attitude. We don't cover things because they're simply an occasion for sin or lust, or that they're shameful or dirty or need to be hidden. We cover things because they are special, very special, and we also uncover them. We do not leave them covered, but we uncover them for special moments, special occasions, at certain times for special eyes who have special attitudes about what they're seeing. Do you see the difference, ladies? So coming to church with your bodies dressed what we call modestly. Now that opens up a whole big question about what do we consider to be modest? Well, there are some rules. And in fact, I kind of liked the rules that were set at the wedding, the royal wedding recently. Do you remember that? The women had to have their shoulders covered and the length of their dresses could not be any higher than the end of their fingertips as they put their arms to their side. You get that? They put their arms to the side where their fingers end up, the edge of their fingers, the dresses could not be any higher than that. That was the requirement, the dress code for the royal wedding that we just saw recently. Well, why not have that kind of code or something like that for God's house, for the most special occasion when we're in the presence of the Eucharist itself? So see, ladies, think of the urging for modest dress as a compliment to you. It emphasizes your specialness, your dignity, and also the specialness of the presence of God that we are in while we are at liturgy. Oftentimes people will say at this point, well, what about men? Well, with men, the modesty thing is not so much a factor. For men, it's more in terms of dignity. In other words, I prefer, people ask me, what do you think we should wear, Father? Well, I'm not going to demand or tell you exactly what to wear. I'll give you some principles, but if you want my preference, I think girls should wear modest dresses, preferably longer ones, and covered appropriately from the waist up as well. Again, we're not saying wear a burqa. We're not saying be shameful. We're talking about being appropriately feminine, but modest. And for the men, to be honest with you, I prefer ties and suits. Now, I know it's summertime, but face it, we come from air-conditioned homes to air-conditioned cars to air-conditioned churches. 
So we stay pretty comfortable. And why not give our best to God? Why not present our best to God? And if we want to know more about it, all we have to do is look, really look, at the liturgy of the church. There we find the context for all of life's questions. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit byzantinecatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Bishop Robert Barron on the priesthood. For the first thousand years, there were married priests within the church. There still are married priests under certain circumstances, you know, so it's not absolutely necessary. However, I'm a supporter of it, and I wouldn't want us to move in the direction of kind of a, hey, you know, optional, some do it, some don't. I get it. And I, I go back to Paul, and it's Paul's words that are actually in the ordination ritual, you know, about an undivided life, undivided life, a total gift. I have nothing but the greatest respect for married people. In fact, when I hear the term heroic sanctity, when they talk about saints, I think of parents right away, you know, who give themselves to their kids. But there's something, I think, pure and simple and undivided about the life of celibacy. It's a radical conformity unto the celibate Christ. Why am I celibate? My ultimate answer, because Jesus was, and I'm conformed to him. The leading Catholic voices are on EWTN Radio. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!